0: So welcome to Beth Adonai on this fine Shabbat morning. Um, I'm Bobby Smith, and I'll be your teacher for the 10 o'clock hour. And what we're going to study this morning is the Torah portion, Peku Day. So um, let's, let's start as we, as we always should with a, with a prayer. Avinu Shabbat our Father in heaven. Father, we come before you on your Shabbat. To draw nearer to you as you commanded us to do father we respect your commandments and your your instruction to us to come before uh, to come before you on your moadim on your appointed times of which the first moadim you've given us is our is your shabbat father i pray that we would um, be enriched by your word this morning that we would walk away from Our service and our and our day um, closer to you understanding you um, much more than when we came and that we would be able to show that to others that we come in contact with I pray that you open our hearts and our minds this day that we would learn and you touch each of us individually with what you would have us to learn in Yeshua's name I pray amen so Peku Day, um, it's the last Torah portion of the book of Exodus, so we're, we're finishing a, uh, the second book of Torah of our new Torah cycle, isn't it amazing how time flies? So um, we are entering into springtime and um, we had a, um, a Rosh Godesh service the other Thursday, night before last, where we have begun the last month of the year, the last month of the biblical year anyway, um, in the this year being a leap year, it's uh, Adar 2 that we have just entered. So we finish up a, um, a, a book of Torah today, and I want to give credit to, before I get started, the re- resources that I used for this, because... Um, I have to use resources because I just haven't been doing this long enough to to develop a lot of my own. You know, you just sort of pull information from, you research and you get ready and you you pull information from. And to be honest with you, the the ones that have spent their lives researching really give us some blessed teachings. So, uh, with that being said, I'm going to be using Daniel Lancaster's FFOZ First Roots of Zion's Tour Club One and Tour Club Five. I'm going to be using the art scroll, kumash, and I'm going to be using Tim Hag, who is, a, is an excellent teacher of, of, of Torah. And all of this is messianic except for the art scroll, kumash but it, it, it gives us some very valuable um, insight into the Torah. Um, because of the timing of this Torah portion in the biblical calendar, it normally falls on a special Shabbat. This is one of the few times that it doesn't fall on a special Shabbat. And Another thing is it normally falls with another torah portion, the one before this Vi call, because uh, we are in a leap year, the torah cycle sort of extended a little bit, so that we actually get to study this torah portion by itself for for a week, which is which is unusual for it. Um, it either falls on one of the three Shabbats of um, of Adar, one of the three special Shabbats of, of Adar, Shabbat Shekalim, Shabbat Parah, or Shabbat HaKodesh. Well, like I said, it, it doesn't do that this, this time. So we're, we're, we're able to, um, those of you that are in Torah class, you're able to really focus on just day today. Um, the last reading of Exodus begins with an audit of how the contributions for the tabernacle were used. This portion goes on to describe the completion of the tabernacle and its assembly, and it concludes by depicting the glory of the Lord entering it. So you can see on the, um, the uh, images that I was able to pull the, the cloud of glory in the two different depictions there uh, entering into the uh, tabernacle, and that's kind of the certificate of occupancy. When the Lord came into the tabernacle and occupied it is when they were able to actually begin the work of the tabernacle. This Parsha begins with a detailed listing of gold and silver and copper, all the amounts of those that were, that were uh, contributed to the construction of the tabernacle. And despite the fact that these medals were deposited with Moses and under the supervision of Bezalel, people who were great in their own right, very honorable people, Moses still felt that it was important to hold a full accounting of all the proceeds that were used in these contributions. He would not really rely on assumptions for leaders must be beyond reproach and they must keep accounts of funds that pass through their hands immaculately. Moshe made an account in order to demonstrate that the process was handled with complete honesty. Tim, Tim Haig interprets the offerings of gold and silver as a tenu pa, which is a wave offering. The significance is that the tabernacle was not first and foremost for the people, but for God. It was a place for God to dwell amongst the people. Their gift of silver and gold was not so they could build this wonderful cathedral to set themselves apart from other peoples. The tabernacle was a dwelling place for the presence of the Almighty, a place in which he could dwell among his people. It was first and foremost for him and for his glory. All too often, we fall into the trap of man-made religion with which our cathedrals are our focus. And our outcome, the outcomes of our efforts are these beautiful structures that we make instead of the glory of God. Sometimes people are more impressed with their religions than they are with their maker. Um, Rabbi saforno comments that the tabernacle and its individual parts were of such awesome holiness that they survived intact through times and wars. You know, when the um, the people of Israel were traveling through the wilderness, their clothes didn't wear out. They were miraculously through those forty years that they were um, that they were uh, in the in the wilderness preparing for the entry into the land. Their clothes didn't wear out. Well, the tabernacle didn't wear out either. The tabernacle was constructed, as you know, of um, of what would be material that would wear, fabric in, in particular. So that, that was very interesting. Unlike the two temples they were, that were both sacked and they were destroyed, Moses' tabernacle remained intact and was never captured nor desecrated. The four reasons for this allude to the first two verses. It was a tabernacle of testimony where the tablets and the symbols of communion with Israel were deposited. It was built at Moses' bidding, thus benefiting from his personal majesty and his personal um, stature. The service of the Levites, who had proven their greatness by their loyal response to Moses after the cas- catastrophe of the golden calf and all the components of the tabernacle are under the charge of Isamar, a man of great stature. Those who led the work as represented by Bezalel, Bez- I have a trouble with that for some reason, were men of distinguished lineage and outstanding righteousness. Because of all these factors, Soferno explains the tabernacle was impervious to time and enemies. Solomon's temple, by contrast, was built in great me- measure by non-Jewish workmen. Consequently, although the Shekinah rested upon it, its parts became worn with time and required repair and replacement. The second temple was built only to the thanks of the benevolence of King Cyrus, and it never held the tablets of the Shekinah. Moses' accurate account of the costly materials that the people brought gave witness of God's miraculous work among them. The sages note that all the silver and gold that was gathered was entirely used in the various implements of the tabernacle. Usually, during the process of casting and shaping and all the things that go into uh, uh, the manufacture of something like that, some of the metal is wasted. But the text indicates that the amount collected equaled the weight of the objects made. None was lost. And the only explanation for this, that the sages can give us, is the ability to make the parts of the tabernacle were given supernaturally to Bazel, and to Alib by the Ruach HaKadosh. This reminds us that the necessary ingredient ingredient in preparing any dwelling for the Almighty, the Ruach HaKadosh, must be active in the work. Is the Ruach's work evident among us? The fruit of his work Is love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and most of all, self control. These are not characteristics of man made tabernacles, but they are inevitable, an inevitable reality in the tabernacle, built by those endowed with the Ruach skill. So, the Parsha starts out in one or 38.21, with this. These are the reckonings of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the testimony, which were reckoned at Moshe's bidding. The labor of the Levites was under the authority of Izamar, Is- son of Aaron the Cohen. Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, did everything that Hashem commanded Moses. With him was Oliab, son of Mach of the tribe of Dan, a carver, weaver, embroiderer with turquoise, purple, scarlet, and wool with linen. I believe that one of the purposes that, that God um, had among the many purposes, that God had the Israelites be slaves in Egypt for all that time, was these were shepherds. This was a family of shepherds when they went into the... Um, into bondage, but when, while they were in Egypt, they were learned to be all types of tradesmen. They were, they were, they were building buildings. They were, build, they were, they were uh, farming. They were learning so many different things, and all these things that they were learning in Egypt served them well when they went and became a nation to be able to do all the things that they were gonna have to do. Building the tabernacle was the first Uh, exhibit of that. As the children of Israel completed the building of the tabernacle, Moses ordered an accounting of all the donations. He did so because he suspected no misappropriation or malfeasance. He already knew that all the contributions had been handled with the utmost of integrity. But he also knew that his reputation in handling money reflected directly on God. He had to make sure That the audit was public, he had to make sure to do this audit to publicly demonstrate that everything had been done with complete honesty. Later in his life, in Numbers 16:15, Moses was able to declare, "I have not taken a single donkey from them." Stewards over the kingdom's resources need to be completely honest and transparent in the process of handling money. In fact, all of God's children. Must be above reproach in financial matters. Integrity is not only measured in big things. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to hit that. Integrity is not only measured in big things, it's measured in little things. Little concessions are still concessions to dishonesty. For example, conveniently not reporting a portion of your income, even though it may be a few dollars or a few hundred dollars to the IRS, is still a tax fraud even if it's just a little thing. Illegally duplicating copyrighted material or other media might save you money, but it's actually theft. A person's integrity is challenged when he is given the wrong change. A man of integrity or a woman of integrity would make that right to who gave them the wrong change. A man without financial integrity has no witness to offer the world And no message to proclaim. Bazalel means in the shadow of God. That's what his name means. You know all Hebrew names have a meaning. So Bazalel is in the shadow of God. The Talmud gives the account that ordinarily a man builds his house. Before he places the furnishings within the house. But the Torah had ordered Moshe to build the ark. Before he built the tabernacle, Bezalel protested to that. He said, Moshe, that will not work. So Moshe agreed that even though the ark was mentioned to be built by, first by God in the Torah, that they would build the tabernacle first. So in um, Daniel Lancaster's Torah 5 on, the, on this uh, Torah portion, he goes and studies to, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and he relates the book of Hebrews to uh and I'd like to read a little bit from the book of Hebrews, just to uh, kind of set the stage for, um, because Hebrews would have not have been a uh, Brit Hadashah reading this week at all, and um, without reading these, these scriptures, it kind of, when he goes into all of his different uh, commentary, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't have the scriptures sort of uh, on your mind, you know, as as, as seeing what the scriptures say. So chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews begins with the priestly order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of God, most high, Who met abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name king of righteousness all these hebrew names have a meaning right and then also king of salem which is the king of peace it's also said that he was the king of Salem would have been Jerusalem. He would have been the king of Jerusalem at the time, even before Jerusalem ever existed. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. He came out of nowhere in the book of Exodus, what did, and we don't get a whole lot about him until you get to the book of Hebrews. And somehow the book of Hebrews is explaining so much about Mechizeldeck. Now consider how great this one was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now if there was, now i have skipped this was uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, if you're going to follow along on your Bible. I'm skipping down to chapter 7, verse 11. Now if there was perfection through the Levitical priesthood, for upon, upon it the people were legislated, What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the son of Aaron? So who was um, the author of the book of Hebrews? We don't know the author of the book of Hebrews. So who was the author of the book of Hebrews writing to? Well, that's interesting to hear what different folks say, who they were writing to. We know they were writing to Messianic Jews. There's no doubt about that. It's it's actually in the um, complete Jewish Bible called uh, the book to the Messianic Jews. Lancaster says that they were writing to a specific group of Messianic Jews that were actually in in Jerusalem in a specific synagogue because they would have worshipped together in a specific synagogue. And he wants to say that it's the synagogue of the freedman. And if any of you have studied the synagogue of the freedman, that is where Stephen came from. And Stephen was actually killed by members of the synagogue of the freedman. That's also where Saul, or Paul, would have came from. But it appears to me that that synagogue, because of the fact that they killed Stephen, would have been a difficult uh, choice to be where he, he would have been writing the book of Hebrews. Because his theory is, is that these Hebrews were the ones that were kicked out of the temple. The Sadducees had kicked them out of the temple because they were professing resurrection. They were professing Yeshua. They were professing the gospel. The gospel was the resurrection of Yeshua. That went directly against the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, and they were powerful at the time. They controlled the temple. Okay? So, the upper room... Where the disciples would have met was not large enough to really be um, a synagogue we don 't think, but it 's thought that there was a synagogue for the believers led by the disciples that would have been in Jerusalem somewhere. Well, it, you know maybe the author was was writing to them, but this was, this was why the disciples were still alive, so who knows but the bottom line is is I agree that it was written to the Messianic Jews that were banned from the temple as a way of, of keeping them in the faith, keeping them, um, keeping them um, encouraged, if you will. Okay? So let's keep going here. This is chapter 7, verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord has sprung forth from Judah, a tribe with references to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priest. The priesthood is not supposed to come from Judah. The priesthood is from Aaron. And this is yet more abundantly evident if according to the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has become a priest not according to the law of the fleshly command but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is witness of him, this is in Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm skipping down to verse 22. So much the more also has Yeshua become the guarantee of a better covenant. And indeed there are many who are made priests because by death, They are prevented from continuing. That's the one thing Yeshua has that no other priest does have, eternal life. He can serve in his ministry forever. And because he he abides forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. There also he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Remember who they're writing to. Remember who's reading this. And it's, and it's applicable, for, uh, applicable for us today. And I'm skipping over to chapter 8. The high priest in a new and better covenant. Now the main point of things being said is this. We have such a high priest. Who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in, heavens, in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. And of the true tabernacle. Which the Lord pitched. Not a human being. Now, if he were on earth, speaking of Yeshua, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the Torah, who served a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The priests on earth serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses being warned by God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain in Exodus twenty-five forty. But now he's obtained a more excellent ministry, but as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been legislated upon better promises. For if that service had been faultless, there would have not been a, no occasion sought for a second. I'm skipping over to chapter 9. Now even the first service had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence that was called a holy place. And behind the second veil was a tabernacle which was called the holy of holies. Now these things, having been thus prepared, The priest could continue to go into the outer tabernacle and perform services, but into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle still has a standing, which is a symbol for this present time the present time that this was being written, and this present time today. But Messiah, having arrived as a high priest of the good things to come, entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So that's some interesting reading, and you—it really you have to have that to go through what I'm about to go through. The writer of the book of Hebrews taught that the sanctuary on earth was a shadow of the heavenly, Despite that, most interpretations of the book of Hebrews understand the author to argue for the cancellation of the temple and the Levitical system. The book of Hebrews has been used as, a, um, as proof of that for centuries. The Mechizedek priesthood of Messiah does not replace or complete the Aaronic priesthood. Messiah's priesthood pertains to the heavenly temple above, and purifies the soul for eternal life. Aaron's priesthood pertains to the earthly temple below and offers rituals and regulations regarding the physical body. The Messiah has come as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty where he ministers in the true heavenly temple If he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. In fact, he was not a priest at all when he was on earth. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the Torah already on earth, the temple in which the Aaronic priesthood serves is a copy and shadow of heavenly things that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. It is based upon the pattern God revealed to Moses, and the priesthood of Messiah is a more excellent ministry than that of the Aaronic priesthood. Just as the covenant he mediates is a better covenant, which has been enacted on the better promises, he is giving us eternal life. The writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of the first covenant and of a new covenant, both. The first covenant is the covenant between the Lord and his people of Israel at Mount Sinai. It consisted primarily of Israel's agreement to keep the Torah. Remember, they agreed to keep the Torah. The second covenant is the covenant of the Messianic Era, described in Jeremiah 31. The writer of the book of Hebrews compares the two covenants, he contrasts them, and he uses them to establish his argument for the priesthood of Messiah. That's what he's doing in the book of Hebrews. He's he's defining the priesthood of Messiah. Let us be clear that Messiah did not do away with the Torah and its place to create a new covenant. Rather, the new covenant in Jeremiah 31 actually incorporates the Torah. So let's listen to it. Jeremiah 31. I'm actually going to go through 34 because you've got to do 31 through 34 to get the whole covenant. Here the days are coming, says Adonai, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Yehudah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, because they, for their part, violated my covenant, even though I, for my part, was a husband to them, says Adonai. For this is the covenant that I will make of the house of Israel after those days, says Adonai. I will put my Torah within them, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will any of them teach his fellow community member or his brother, no Adonai, for all will know me, from the least of them to the greatest, because I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Not only will all of Israel know him, but the whole world will know him. There will be no doubt. It's interesting when you break down what all that was just was, was in that passage that I just read. There's basically seven promises within that. The first one is, is God will forgive Israel their wickedness. God will not remember Israel's sin. All Israel will know the Lord. Israel will never cease to be a nation before God. And that's in 3136. God will never reject the seed of Israel. These are so important. This is this stuff is just it's 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 life-changing if you if you understand this. God will rebuild Jerusalem as an eternal structure. He promises that. We're on the last Torah portion in the book of Exodus. We're, we're, we're completing the, the scriptures on the building of the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord is entering the tabernacle in this, in this Torah portion. God is, is, is promising that this will be an eternal structure at some point. The eternal city of Jerusalem will be holy to the Lord. So these are the seven points that were made in that that passage that I just read from Jeremiah. The writer of the book of Hebrews declares that a second covenant was needed because the first covenant was flawed. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. The word covenant does not actually appear in the Greek of Hebrews 8, 7. They use it, it's been translated in English. Instead, the English translator supplied this. The writer contrasts the covenant made at Sinai with a new covenant. He refers to the covenant made at Sinai as the first and the new covenant as the second. The problem with inserting the word covenant where it was not written is that the writer of Hebrews speaks sometimes in the broad terms of an old and new covenant but at other times, he speaks in narrower terms of tabernacle and priesthood. At still other times, he uses the term first and second to contrast this present world and the world to come. Two simple Greek words unlock the meaning in Hebrews chapters eight through nine. In Hebrews eight, seven, the word first translate into the Greek word protos. That's how you spell it in Greek the Hebrew word second translate into deutros. These words are easy to remember because English borrows both of them. The English word prototype, for example, employs the Greek words protos to indicate first. The Septuagint name for the fifth book of the Torah uses the word deutros, and it's the familiar word to all of us called Deuteronomy. Which literally means the second law. So there, the two words are together. We're going to do a little bit, a good bit, with these words. We can now read the passage, removing the word covenant, which was not in the original, and substituting first and second for our Greek terminology. For it was that first, protos, had been false. Let me start over. For if that first which is the word protos, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for the second, deutros, for finding fault with them, he says in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, "will I when effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What was wrong with the first? Was it the Torah that was faulty? Or was it the people who broke the Torah who were faulty? The problem with the first was that God found fault with his people. The weakness of the first, the protos, resulted from the weak covenant partner, which was the people, fallen and imperfect human beings. God kept his end of the bargain, his end of the arrangement, but we did not keep ours. So what should God do? Should he lower the bar, remove the Torah, Changes standards to accommodate us? God does not change. His law does not change. He cannot change. His Torah cannot change. But he can change us. We are creatures. He is the creator. He cannot be recreated, but we can. And that recreation results in complete and total redemption and even eternal life. And these are the better promises of the Deutros, the second. The Protos covenant resulted in condemnation for the breaking of the Torah. The Deutros results in recreation where the same Torah is written on human hearts. In his saying, a new service, he has made the first old. But that which is becoming old and aging is close to vanishing away. He says that in Hebrews 8.13. 8, now, he says close to vanishing away, not completely vanishing away, because it has not vanished away until he institutes that new covenant with the Messianic era. Hebrews 8.13 could be easily used as a proof text by theologians who declare, you see, the Torah is obsolete, aging, and disappearing. Therefore, we are no longer under Torah. A believer need no longer observe the Torah or the Sabbaths, Festivals, dietary laws, distinctions of clean and unclean, etc. Everything is now permissible. We are under grace, not the law, etc., right? But the writer of Hebrews did not say the Torah is obsolete, aging, or disappearing. He said the first is becoming obsolete. It's not obsolete yet. It's ready to vanish, but it's not vanished yet. Since our writer refrains from using the word Covenant, or the term covenant, he contrasts protos and deutros. Our translators feel obligated to insert it. After all, the text is certainly the term first protos in antithesis to the new covenant. One might argue that the old covenant of Torah, as represented by the Aaronic priesthood, has been su- supplanted by the new covenant of grace, represented by the messianic priesthood. This comes closer to the meaning but it incorrectly equates Torah and Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is not the Torah. Instead, the Old Covenant was Israel's agreement to keep the Torah. It fails as a means of salvation because all have sinned and fallen short. The New Covenant is not the collection of the Greek scriptures that are popularly popularly called the New Testament. Instead, The new covenant is an expression taken from Jeremiah 31. The new covenant is the covenant of the messianic era and the world to come, where the spirit writes the Torah upon our hearts of men and God forgives and atones for the sin of his people. The Torah was the new covenant document of the first century believers. They did not have a New Testament. They had the Torah, the prophet, and the writings which is uh, acronym Tanakh. The difference between the two covenants is that in the new, we are recreated as new creatures in Messiah. So what is obsolete? To be clear, the Torah is not obsolete, aging or disappearing. The Torah is part of the new covenant. It's clearly stated in Jeremiah 31. neither is the jerusalem temple obsolete even though we don't have it now one can hardly refer to god's holy house as obsolete it stood for 40 years after messiah's resurrection according to ezekiel isaiah micah and all the prophets it will be restored in the future it's hard to call it obsolete especially when notables like simon peter James and John remained involved in its worship services on a continual basis, and it will be rebuilt in the messianic era. Is it the Aaronic priesthood that is obsolete? Aging and soon to disappear? The Torah said that that is an eternal priesthood. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of the Aaronic priesthood functioning again in the Messianic era. Jeremiah links the restored priesthood with the promise of the coming of the Messiah. So what then is aging, obsolete, and disappearing? It is the first, the protos, this present world. This becomes clear when the writer of Hebrews equates proto as a symbol of this present time. What will soon disappear are our human failings. This world, fallen and imperfect as we know it, it will disappear, being swallowed up first in part during the messianic age and then in the world to come, which will appear at the end of the messianic era. In the world to come, there will be no need for temple, priesthood, or sacrifice, as it says in Revelation 21:22. I saw no temple in it, For the Lord, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Until then, this present world, the covenant made at Sinai, and the Levitical worship system continues. Although this present world is becoming obsolete and growing old and is ready to vanish away, it has not vanished yet. Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the Torah, until all is accomplished. Yeshua says this in Matthew 5.18. Just as the Lord commanded Moses, because the tabernacle was made exactly as the Lord had commanded Moses, the entire project was a success. By telling this story, the Torah is attempting to establish the principle of complete obedience to the commandments of God through Moses. Just as Moses and the children of Israel Endeavor to fulfill the commandments of the building of the tabernacle down to the smallest detail, we should have the same commitment, fulfilling God's moral and ethical laws. We should follow his commandments in great detail as best we can. The children of Israel built the tabernacle to be a holy dwelling place of God on earth. They desired the presence of God in their midst, and God desired to dwell with them the tabernacle on earth was patterned after God's eternal dwelling place in heaven. In other words, the children of Israel were building heaven on earth. When Moses saw that the work had been completed, he turned to the people of Israel and he blessed them. The day of occupancy, Co is coming to the uh, co is this term for certificate of occupancy for those of you who have to get into a new building, in 40 verses 1 through 2. Let's read that real quick. Chapter 40, verse 1 through 2. Where? In uh, Exodus, or uh, yeah, Exodus, chapter 40, verse 1 through 2. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, "On the day of the first new moon, on the first of the month." You shall erect the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. There you shall place the ark of the testimony and the screen of the ark with a partition. So he gave them the date. What's the first of the new moon that he's talking about? Nisan 1. Nisan one. 1. Which, if we had, didn't have a leap year, we'd be close to Nisan 1 now. So it's, it's, uh, it's coming fast. Hashem spoke to Moses saying, on the day of the first new moon, on the day of the first month, Nisan 1, you shall erect the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. As explained by the sages, Rosh Kadesh Nisan was the day the tabernacle was erected permanently. From then on, it would be disassembled only when the nation traveled. How might our hearts desire how might we assess our heart's desire for God's presence? Might we suggest two simple questions? How high a value do you put on things? Stuff. Things, stuff. Cars, houses, clothes, stuff. You know? What takes priority in your schedule every day? Is it wealth and time? They're two of the most important commodities in our lives. There's this um, advertisement that comes on the radio I hear pretty much every week. It's advertising, I think, Income Store is the name of the thing that's advertising. Would you rather have time and no money or money and no time? Or somewhere in between, right? <laughs> it says that 95% of, uh, 95% of us fall in both of those two categories. Mm-hmm. Yes. This reminds me of the famous MasterCard commercial. meaning What this cost, what that cost, and then it says spending time with your family, prices, for everything else that's MasterCard. Well, there you go. So what she said for those of you online that couldn't hear: her, spend, spending time with your with your family is where you should spend your time. Everything else, there's master charge. <laughs> that's what this that's that's commercial reminds me of. Is the master charge. good? <laughs> God asks us to put His friendship above all. It doesn't mean that things are unimportant or somehow evil. On the contrary, because you know what God created it all he created all this stuff. Our part and, and there's nothing wrong with balance. Balance is important. Our part should put a high value upon materials that were used for the construction of the tabernacle, as well as the skill and the time of those who did the actual building. The issue was a matter of priority. The principle of the tithe attaches the issue of things while appointed times Shabbat, and festivals attached to our matter of time. Would we have been willing to give up our savings account in order to prepare the Mishkan, a place for God's Shekinah? Would we have conformed our schedules to match God's requirements? It is very interesting that God prescribes exactly who the Mishkan was to be erected. He also asked us to demonstrate our level of desire for his presence by submitting to him the two things we value most our material possessions and our time. Even in the building of the Articles of the Mishkan, God's appointed time, Shabbat, were to be kept, and the people were expected to give from their own possessions in order to make the Mishkan a reality. All this teaches an important principle God dwells amongst those who put Him first, whose desire, who desire His presence above all else it's no secret why such an elaborate measures were ordained for the priestly vestments and the tabernacle itself all those foreshadowed the person and the work of Yeshua so I'm going to um, kind of go through this with a couple of more temples here there's, there's our at least a uh, rendering thanks Rabbi Renee. If you want to be near the Shachanah, find the son, for the father and the son dwell together as one. It's amazing to earn, learn the value in today's dollars about the donations of the building of the tabernacle compared to what, what the money was worth then. According to Tim Hag, it was 20-plus million dollars that built the tabernacle. Now, we're not sure if that's correct or not. Myself, I didn't verify that. That's what he said, but if so, that is amazing. On the first day of the month, the children of Israel assembled the tabernacle. They had been encamped at Mount Sinai for nine months. It was just two weeks short of a year since the day the Lord led them out of Egypt. For the last five months, they had been building the tabernacle. The first day of the month, after they left Egypt, proved to be a busy day. On that day, they raised the tabernacle. Moses placed all the furnishings, hung the vessels, lit the menorah, placed the bread of the presence on the table, offered incense, and lit the altar fires. Then the presence of God filled the tabernacle. On that same day, God called Moses from within the tabernacle, giving him the instructions for the sacrifices and the priesthood recorded in the last chapters of the book of Leviticus. On the same day, Moses began the ordination of Aaron and his sons into the priesthood. On that same day, the prince of the tribe of Judah offered a gift for dedication to the altar. The new moon of the first month, the month of Nisan, also marks the beginning of the new year according to the agricultural reckoning. It is the month of springtime, the month of new growth. It's also the month of Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, the annual rehearsal of Israel's salvation from Egypt. The new moon uniquely symbolizes the experience of being born again. We just celebrated a new moon on Thursday night. It was a beautiful thing. The shekinah, and I'm, I'm thankful we do that here at Beth Adonai too, by the way. The, the tabernacle was finally complete. The cloud of glory that had led the children of Israel out of Egypt and rested upon Mount Sinai removed from the mountain and settled on the tabernacle. The dwelling presence of God filled His tabernacle. The Hebrew word shekinah is derived from the verb, from the verb, the Hebrew verb shekin, which means to dwell. In the days of Moses, the Shekinah of God filled the cloud of glory. He led the host of Israel out of Egypt. In the cloud, he rested on the top of Mount Sinai while giving the Torah to Moses until the tabernacle was completed. In the days of King Solomon, the Shekinah of God was seen entering the new temple in Jerusalem. Just before the destruction of Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel saw a vision of the Shekinah of God leaving the temple in the presence of his holy cherubim. In the book of Acts, the Shekinah returned to the temple with the sound of rushing wind and settled on the disciples in tongues of fire. According to the conventional reading of Hebrews 9, the temple symbolized the old covenant. The writer used the word protos instead of the term old covenant. Ultimately, he will use the word protos to communicate a concept much larger than the covenant made at Sinai. He will explain that the protos symbolizes this present time in Hebrews 9.9. The protos represents the present, fallen, material world, which the writer previously described obsolete and quickly vanishing. He explains that the protos has regulations of worship, i.e., at the priesthood and sacrificial system that are prescribed in the Torah. The priesthood and the sacrificial system are not the protos, but they are functions of the protos in as much as they are earthly institutions. The instructions for the tabernacle and the temple divided the sanctuary into two separate domains, the holy place and the holy of holies. A veil separated the two areas. The holy place contained the menorah, the table of the bread of presence, and the altar of incense. The priests had access to the holy place every day. They had access every day, entering the holy place twice daily to tend to the menorah and offer up the incense. On Sabbaths, they changed out the 12 loads of bread of the presence. They did not have access to the Holy of Holies behind the veil where the Ark of the Covenant sat. The Torah allowed only the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies, and that only on the Day of Atonement. We can understand the two separate domains as the protos, which is the holy place, and the deutros, which is the holy of holies. In the writer's explanation, the holy place of the outer sanctuary corresponds to the protos, in this world, and the Sinai covenant. The holy of holies corresponds to the deutros, which is the world to come, and the new covenant. Inside the deutros, the incense censer, the ark, the golden jar of manna, and the staff of Aaron, the two tablets of the covenant, and the mercy seat, Overshadow the cherubim and components belong to the domain of the new covenant. Each thing carries important symbolic value. Each of the different components in the in the uh, tabernacle all contain symbolic value. I don't have time to go through of all that, but I will do one one thing, which is the menorah. This is beautiful. David Stearns. Description of the menorah. This was actually a picture of the Temple Institute's menorah that's on display in Jerusalem. The menorah, a lamp for seven lights, was made by Betzel, alel for the tabernacle in the time of Moshe. Later, it was placed in the temple between the ten menorahs by Hiram for so- Sh- Solomon's temple. I want to say Shalom, but I couldn't get it out. Symbolically, the temple menorah represented the creation of the universe in six days with the seventh center light symbolizing the Shabbat. The seven branches are the seven continents of the earth and the seven heavens guided by the light of God. The menorah reappears in Revelation where Yokonan ter- learns its secret meaning. The seven branches are the messianic communities, the con- congregations, that are addressed by the Messiah in the last book of the Bible. The proto-area represents this present world where God can be served. Once we pass into the deutros, the world to come, our service will no longer be mentoris. It's too late at that point. The rabbis say, more beautiful is one hour of repentance and good deeds in this world than all the life in the world to come. The idea that the tabernacle and the temple symbolize the old covenant is incorrect. Instead, the sanctuary was composed of both the protos and the deutros, symbolizing both the protos covenant, the agreement for this present world, and the deutros covenant, the agreement of the world to come. The high priest entered the deutros, the holy of holies, of the temple, to serve only once a year. Just as the high priest went into the deutros only once a year, so too the sacrifices of the debtors of the covenant is a one-time affair. Yeshua Yeshua only had to be sacrificed once. This should explain why the prophets indicate that there will be sacrifices in the Messianic era. The Messianic era straddles both the Protos and the deutros. The Messianic era may be likened to the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. It sits upon the threshold of the world to come, but it remains within this present world. During the thousand years of the messianic era, people who have yet entered the resurrection state will populate the earth. They will have not entered the world to come state of existence. As, they, as such, they remain within the protos as regard to their physical state. The sacrificial service will still be a matter of food and drink in various immersions, regulations for the body applying until the time of the restoration, that is, until the time we enter into the world to come. Those physical ritual sacrifices cannot remove sin. They do not change a person's spiritual state on the inside. They cannot make the worshiper perfect and conscious. The Dutros covenant, i.e. the new covenant, is about changing people on the inside, making them perfect for participation in the world to come by means of entering a resurrected state. The Protos covenant cannot do that. The Protos sacrificial service can accomplish cannot accomplish your salvation, recreation, or resurrection. Only the Dutros covenant, the Dutros sacrifice of Messiah, can accomplish that. The Messiah has come, not as a high priest of the Aaronic order, or even in this present world. His priesthood pertains to the Dutros, not to the Protos. He represents the good things that are to come, the world to come, and the new covenant. When Yeshua of Nazareth rose from the dead, he entered into the undying realm of the world to come. Like the high priest who entered the Holy of Holies, the Dutros, on behalf of the nation, Yeshua rose as the first fruits of the resurrection, the good things that are yet to come. He has entered the Dutros' state of existence. Messiah's death and resurrection did not cancel the Aaronic priesthood. Instead, his priesthood occurs in a different venue, He did not cancel the temple. Instead, the temple on earth reflects the temple above. What are you building? Are you looking toward the dutros? Our building should begin with our immediate families. We should spend our time and energy and finances first on our immediate family. The family is our top priority. Are you working hard to utilize the gifts which God has endowed you to take care of your family? The foundation must be built first. That's the foundation. First, from there, you move on to your faith community and extended family and keep extending as you progress throughout your communities. We should each be using our God-given talents to build our families and our communities. God's teachings are expressed in his covenants. They're also expressed in his Torah. He wants communities where his presence is known, where his covenant righteousness is manifest in a way that we treat, in how we treat each other, how we care for each other, and how we bear each other's burdens, and especially in the way that the truth of God and Messiah Yeshua is lived out day to day, year to year, and generation to generation. So I'm going to end this with. the reading from the book of Revelations, which is our half Torah of the day, which will probably get read during Aliyah, but it uh, wouldn't hurt to hear it twice. This is from Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 through 8, and it's extremely appropriate as all the biblical readings are for the, for the weekly Torah um, portions. After these things, this is John uh, in his book of Revelation. After these things I looked. And the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open, And out of the temple came the seven angels, who had the seven plagues, clothed in linen, clear and bright, and girded around their breasts with golden girdles. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the anger of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God for his power and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Isn't it something how things stay the same, right? All right, so um, next week I'm going to be doing this again, and I'm going to be teaching on Purim. And hopefully uh, you'll be able to come for that. Been doing a lot of good work on, on Purim. Hopefully it'll be... Uh, be um, worthy you know and hopefully it'll be good for you guys so let's close with a prayer alvinu shabbat our father in heaven father thank you for this shabbat day for the opportunity to be here in your house on your day thank you for this awesome congregation that we have and for all the wonderful people that are a part of this congregation and that come here every week loyally to worship you and to be a part of your your kingdom father I pray that you touch us all today with your service and you protect us as we come and go and that as we go out into the world, Father, that we show you in us in everything that we do. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen.